This episode is brought to you by DMV Black Restaurant Week, bringing culture, education, and good food to eaters in the D.C., Maryland, and Virginia area. Restoration is defined as the act of returning something to its former condition, or grander in this case. The team behind Gage and Tolner worked tirelessly throughout 2019 and into 2020 to restore a legend of the Brooklyn Dying scene. They were slated to open on March 15th, the iconic conversation with the famous Julius Caesar line. We all know what happened next. While the world is anxiously awaiting for our opportunity for restoration within our own businesses, the team behind Gage and Tolner is doing so just as eagerly to share this gem with the city of New York. Our guests today are partners in Gage and Tolner and seasoned restaurants with several beloved establishments in Brooklyn between them. We are excited to welcome Chef Sohee Kim and Senjin Frizzell back to the show. We first sat down with Sohi and Senjin on January 30th, which honestly seems like a complete lifetime ago at this point. Um, so we'll check in first with that conversation and then back with more. Tell us, I guess, guys, where you're at in the process of, um, we're, we're in your site right now, and it's obviously a construction zone, kitchen's almost complete. But where are you in the process of menu planning? So menu planning. Um, so, you know, when, I guess I really started writing this menu about two years ago and um and i just sort of put the last finishing touches on it yesterday um put prices up for it um and and know what all the garniture is going to be and and which line cook is going to have which dish so we're very very close to finalizing it for sure cool good I was going to say, wait, so you were in this historic space. You're the only, you're one of four landmarked interiors, sorry, one of three, when I'm getting a three sign, one of, oh, four. There's some debate. Are, are we three? We're one of four interior restaurant landmarks, um, and the space is absolutely stunning. So how much of the space is playing into what your menu design is going to be? Um, a lot, actually, in terms of dealing with the history of this place, and that's one of the real reasons why I was so attracted to it. Um, just finding all these old recipes, and not so much recipes, but menus. Um, it goes back, you know, 100 years. Um, yeah, old, actual Gage and Tolner menus? That you're- from different eras, yeah. And, and that's one of the first tasks that Sinjin tackled, is to get all this sort of archival stuff. And, uh, and just looking at it just was just mind-blowing. Where, where did you, was there like an actual archive? Like where did you get the information? So right around the time that we first saw the space, which was, I went back and I looked it up. It was April 2017. <laughs> that, yeah. wow. So it was almost three years ago that we saw it for the first time. Yeah. Um, but when we realized it was available and that we had the opportunity to bring back this historic restaurant or the, the, the newest uh, version of it, um, I started researching and really hit uh, the motherload at the Brooklyn Historical Society, where um, 11 boxes of ephemera from the history of the restaurant had just been donated by the daughter of one of the original owners. So we, we, um, they were still sort of sorting through that uh, donation the first time. I 11 there. boxes. I yeah. Just, of the 11 boxes. That's a crazy yeah. amount of documentation. It's crazy. Like, it was... The documents went back to 1919. Wow. There were like um, business ledgers, um, 
uh, minutes of uh, corporate meetings of uh, Gage and Tolner Inc., old menus, newspaper clippings, like you name it. Oh, it was so exciting to look at all that stuff. And so then the, the ultimate question is, okay, what are we going to put forth? You know, what is the reiteration of this going to be? Um, and so we did a lot of talking about it first, right? What is sort of the vision of this place? What are we serving? And so it really is, um, in general, looking back, but really looking forward, um, you know, making nods to the past. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of uh, sort of the southern, you know, influences on the menu. Obviously, that's from Edna Lewis's legacy that we want to sort of, you know, you know, just got to give her the props, you know what I mean? Um, and then there's a lot of other chop house, you know, specialty stuff. And so it really was about providing food that is accessible to the people and nothing too, like, you know, mind-blowingly complicated, just simple food. Um, and what was that motto that they had here about? They would say that they don't have chefs, that they just have really good cooks. Um, and I think that, yeah, the way we're approaching this restaurant is not, not to make it really personality driven. It's really, it's the restaurant is the personality and we're just trying to just let it shine. And, and that comes through in the, the design of the place, the menu choice is everything. And really, you know, as chefs and cooks and, you know, as, as um, the back of the house, you know, leadership, if you will, it really is about getting the right people in and also getting the right ingredients in and sort of really working on what I've been honing for the, you know, for the past decade or so is really utilizing all that relationship that I have with farmers and purveyors and, you know, just getting the best stuff and letting the ingredients really shine. That's really sort of the driving force. Right. I feel like... People probably didn't cook the same way a hundred years ago. How, right. how, like, what kind of things on the menu were there that you just wouldn't do today? And how do you sort of, you know, revive it without, right. you know, falling into, you know, using iodized salt from sure. forty years ago? So, right? so if you look at menus from like say sixty, say eighty years ago, right? There was a lot of as an oyster chop house, they would offer, you know, um, say clams, oysters, shrimp, served fifteen like 20 different ways. Wow. We don't eat like that. <laughs> um, so Nor do you want your kitchen staff having right. to prepare all that. That's yeah. right. But it's about simplicity though, right? So that nods to, you know, sort of the, the history of the public house, the pubs, you know, um, where things were just cooked very, very simply. And it was, it was just that. It, you know, the, the menu was like oysters, broiled, creamed, um, battered, fried. And that was, you know, the menu just took up so much space. It's like they gave you a pencil and you check the box of which one you want. Pretty much, pretty. So we knew obviously we're not going to do that. But there is a, a soft belly clam broil that we're going to have, and a lot of people have been asking about it, so I can not do it. <laughs> so it's definitely on the menu. What's a and soft that's source, belly? And that's sourcing. Tell, tell us what uh, that is. Yeah, so soft uh, soft shell clams, mm. also known as Ipswich uh, steamers. Yeah. So we're going to just basically simply just broil it uh, with a little butter. The butter might be infused with something, um, and uh, called miso. <laughs> so you know, not to say that this is going to be, you know, you know, I am Korean American chef. I do own the Good Fork and Insa, so I am so used to working with a very international sort of pantry. And I feel like you know, people when they open up the menu, they'll recognize everything. But it is then up to the cooks and the chefs to sort of make that shine in a way. So we're not going to advertise like miso and kimchi and that that's going to be in our larder, but we're certainly going to use it. Um, and all people have to know is that, oh, my God, this tastes so good. Right. 
the the food um you know this was a famous restaurant in its heyday and so there are a lot of recipes not a lot but we've been able to find recipes that were published in magazines and books and stuff and when you read the recipe for like the clam belly broil i mean it's clams butter cracker crumbs that they would get from the bottom of the tin of oyster crackers and then like salt and pepper like that's it like and that was that's everything we've been able to find rarely is there is there like um you know extra flavoring ingredients it's just butter cream salt and pepper that's what they use most of the time but people really responded well to this food they really loved it full circle, I think, in the way that we eat, and it kind of works out timing-wise. Tell us a little bit about how, you know, obviously the space that you have, the size of the kitchen, the size of your storage, Mm -hmm. all those things factor into how you plan your menu. Tell us how how that worked here. So basically we have a, um, the kitchen is, is, you know, is sort of a finite space, right? We have this landmark interior space, and then we have our kitchen. The inside of the kitchen has been totally redone. But the size is, we couldn't increase it. So what you see is what you get in terms of kitchen. Uh, we do have sort of storage area downstairs where we could do sort of, you know, ancillary prep. Um, it really is all about, I think, um, the numbers expected. And and I've been really going off of how so many people are so enthusiastic about this opening. So I'm, I'm really expecting it to be a really busy, you yeah. know, all day sort of scenario. Um, so then it's about the kitchen design, you know, how many stations, how many dishes can, you know, one line cook sort of handle, and then what does that production look like, you know, downstairs. Um, so, you know, I'm staffing it like I've never staffed before, yeah. so we're expecting it to be super busy. Um, how, many people, how many people are you going to have in the kitchen? So I think all told there's going to be about maybe um, 20 cooks, you know, and that's including... On a shift at a time, or... You know, Total, total schedule. Total schedule. So 20 to 25 because, you know, there's a private dining rooms up here. Right. We're going to be rolling out lunch, you know, around the same time that private dining rooms are ready. Um, and also the bar that serves its own, you know, limited menu. Right. So. And you've got 110 seats, you said, downstairs, plus how many expected for PDRs once you're all totaled in? So the, we have two uh, PDRs upstairs that can seat a combined uh, 70. Um and then the Sunken Harbor Club will probably hold about 30 as well. So you, so you guys have been working on menu planning for a little while, but your kitchen gas just got turned on last week. Is that? Two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Two weeks ago. And so now you're actually in your kitchen and you're, te- and you're starting to test and iterate. And what's, has anything changed? Has anything happened that you're like, oh, this oven, I don't know, anything, any like funny? Yeah. Not yet, <laughs> but ask me this question in two weeks. <laughs> well, that's why we have the follow-up. That's it. That's why we got the follow-up. As, as of now, I, you know, it looks beautiful. I love the way that the kitchen has been designed, um, and, uh, and we got some really good equipment in there. So I think in terms of firepower, we'll be fine for now. For now. And what's it like cooking in a semi-construction site? Have, have you had any challenges or you're... 
Well, you know, I have experience from the good fork and inside. (laughs) (laughs) This isn't the first time. No, it's not the first time. It's fine. It's very exciting, though. You know, as as we're putting sort of the final touches in the dining room, um, we're getting organized in the back, and you really sort of feel like this place is coming alive. So it's super exciting. I mean, we can feel that from being downstairs just for a few minutes, seeing everything buzzing and upholstery going on the wall. It's super exciting. Yeah, Yeah, a a big part of uh, menu planning is obviously the people... You, you're not going to cook everything for the no. 200 people in this place. So the people that are going to be working with you right. and you've just started to do some testing, tell us how they're responding, the people that you're testing with, to the menu that you have so far. Right. So I should mention our wonderful chef de cuisine. His name is Adam Shepard. And he and I, in the past six months, he joined the team um, a little while ago, actually a long while ago. (laughs) He reached out about this project about a year and a half ago. And I had an opening at INSA, so he's been sort of helping me run that place uh, all along, knowing that he's going to move over here. So he's a real driving force. And when I, you know, talk about uh, purveyors and stuff like that, he, you know, he's been cooking actually longer than I have. So he has even more more contacts and, you know, more people. So uh, specifically tackling stuff like, you know, the soft belly clam dish that we're going to have or the she-crab soup, you know, the Edna Lewis made famous here, um, as well as the mutton chop that we want to bring in. Um, It's been great to collaborate with him. Um, So, you know, we're getting there in terms of having, you know, we're doing the hiring process right now. you know, the team isn't complete, but we have a really good sort of outline uh, of, of who will sort of join us in a week or two. Um, so we're sort of at that point where nothing's really set, but we, we're sort of like, okay, this is the direction that we're going to take. So, I mean, we're still meeting with vendors and purveyors and sampling meets and stuff like that and, and really trying to focus sort of locally and working with farms that are, you know, there's a lot of great uh, meat purveyors out there, but really we're trying to do everything sort of right by, by our sort of philosophy, um, eating locally, stuff like that. It might be sort of hard um, for, for every ingredient to be very, you know, hyper-local, but, um, but, but there are plenty of farms, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, so we're trying not to go as far as, say, Colorado, um, but again, in two weeks, we'll know for sure. <laughs> we'll see what changes in two weeks. Um, and what about, and I know you have a great pastry chef that you've brought yes. on as well, Caroline. So pastry's all been set up and that's moving to. Yeah, so this is, this is the other sort of perk of having other restaurants is that Caroline, I tapped her about this idea of being our pastry chef and she just was so excited. And she and I go way back because she was a Good Fork employee for a long time, like 14 years ago. Oh my God. Crazy. So anyway, so having the Good Fork was really great. Uh, this past spring and summer, we did sort of pop-ups. We didn't really call it Gage and Tolner pop-ups, but you know, she she and I we sort of talked about the pastry direction in terms of menu. So we were able to actually play around a lot, and she made a lot of wonderful things that's going to end up, you know, on the menu. So it's great to have other restaurants as you know, test kitchens. Yeah, it makes a big difference, I think. Um, before we let you go, I have one other question, um, kind of about the volume of the menu. Do you, in your, in, in your planning, do you start small, hone in and focus, and then grow as your, your team gets used to putting it out? Do you go for the gold of what you want, you know, diners to walk in and see and reviewers to come in and see initially? Sure. How do you balance that? 
My, our process has been sort of go big and then sort of will it down a little bit. So, you know, we have the sections of the raw bar, you know, how many oyster selections are we going to offer? In the beginning I said a dozen, but now I feel like six is better than a dozen. Uh, you know, with soups and salads, you know, naming, sort of writing down all different um, soups and salads that we wanted to showcase. Um, and so to answer your question, then sort of plugging in, right? It's almost like I, we do this exercise where you cut out each sort of dish and then put it on each station and seeing how many people could handle it, right? Um, and how many dishes does that one particular station have? So, so in terms of writing the menu, we've started very big and now we're just sort of whittling it down and editing it. But it's still a good size menu, I would say. The offering is sort of vast, and I think that it will appeal to, uh, to a lot of people. So hopefully it won't disappoint. One interesting thing, too, about the menu is that we are going to be, we're opening for dinner only at first, and then we're adding lunch service second, but the lunch menu will be the same as the dinner menu, plus a few extra lunch items, sandwiches and soups and that sort of thing. Because we think that when people come here, that they're going to want the stuff that you are able to get at uh, dinner. That's so, right. so few specialty items for lunch. Um, the plan right now is is to have a really good blend, you know, house blend of um, meats for the burger, the good uh, the uh, the gauge and tone of burger, but not to offer it at dinner time, just to offer it. So then maybe that's a draw for lunchtime crowds. Um, so like few sandwiches in addition to the actual menu. Maybe, maybe even a hot roast beef sandwich to <laughs> right. pay exactly. homage to the former tenants right. here. Right. So do we then call it, I don't know, something like, not Arby's roast beef, but something, we had to have some sort of... So there was a Rob, there was an Arby's in here bef- in between. I think that's, that's who we're paying homage to, not the original Gajan. <laughs> Sure, it's imperative to pay homage to Arby's. <laughs> but but the, I, with the other. but the idea is sort of fun. <laughs> but, then, but then if we pay homage to Arby's, then we have to do something else for a nod to TGIF. <laughs> oh, there was a Fridays in here. Oh, yes. you, nobody like nobody would say no to a blooming onion or whatever it is. <laughs> and actually, I think uh, we found a blooming onion on one of the, the old uh, Gajan Tulner menus from the 90s. There was, I forget what they call it exactly, but it was like a blossoming fried onion or something. I think that was it, blossoming onion. I think it was blossoming onion. Same idea. Any other things like that that you guys dug up that you just sort of, you know, shuddered at the idea that would come out of the kitchen? Um, Whale steak. Whale steak. Uh, Well, well, that's also illegal now, no? (laughs) Yes, that was on the menu. And I I think I said, no. (laughs) What era was that from? And then there was, there's um, stories we've heard a couple people talk about, um, you know, they they offered a turtle soup here. And so they would buy, they would get the turtle shipped in live. These were big animals and keep them alive in the basement until it was time. And then they would... (laughs) They would have someone sit down there in the basement with like an axe just oh. waiting for the turtle to pop his head out of the shell. Oh this God. is the old days. I don't oh think God. the uh, Department of Health would, would, uh, would go for that kind of thing now. And we're not going to do that, by the way. <laughs> Did I make that clear? I hope so. One of, the, one of the restaurants I cut my chops in in New Orleans has a very famous turtle soup, and we made it in a very different way than, than that. That's yeah. right. We, we met, actually met working at Commander's, yeah. and yeah, so we know, we know turtle soup. Yeah, no live turtles in the basement there. No basements in New Orleans. <laughs> Wasn't there a mock turtle soup on the menu at some point too, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of, yeah. yeah, that's right. And I remember I had that on the menu, the very first one. 
um, when we were making the website and, mm -hmm. and trying to raise some funds. And that got a lot of like, whoa, you're going to do mock turtle soup? <laughs> I love it. I mean, yeah. you know, to me, it's all about the sherry anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Well, you get the sherry and the she crab soup. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think she crab soup is definitely more palatable than uh, turtle soup. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a smart move. Cool. Yeah. We're excited yeah. to hear how menu planning goes and yeah. see you on the other side of that project. Yeah, so we'll catch up with you guys when your when your doors are open and we can taste the she crab soup. Oh yes. Sounds good. Can't right, wait. Can't wait. This episode is brought to you by DMV Black Restaurant Week. Bringing together black restaurant owners in DC, Maryland, and Virginia area with a mission to keep black food culture alive. But DMV Black Restaurant Week is not just about a week, it's about making an impact in the community all year round. By advocating for local black-owned restaurants, DMV Black Restaurant Week aims to use food as a force for good. In 2020, they're planning signature programming, like the Business of Food and Education Conference, cocktail competition, and more. Learn more about how DMV Black Restaurant Week is promoting culture, education, and good food at dmvbrw.com. So, hi guys, welcome <laughs> back. Hello. How, how are you? Welcome. We are okay. <laughs> we are okay. <laughs> that is just yes. That's the way to put it. We are okay. So, obviously, we first spoke back in January which I don't know, I have like so many more gray hairs now than I ever thought could have been imagined. So many things have changed and obviously with you as well. So catch us up on all the things. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, Sinjin, do you want to start us off? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah, I mean, um, we were supposed to reopen a very highly anticipated, uh, restaurant in downtown Brooklyn on March 15th. And instead of opening, we laid off our entire staff and uh, turned the lights off and walked away. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was just, um, it was really that day was, um, it was supposed to be the culmination of literally years of work of uh, Ben and Sohi and I. Um, it took, you know, really three years of our life to get that uh, project funded and to get it off the ground. Uh, we had done some friends and family nights and a little uh, some thank you parties for investors. And that Sunday, March fifteenth, was supposed to be the day we were supposed to open it to the public. Uh, you know, once and for all, this restaurant that had been closed um, for many many years uh, and was sorely missed. Um, it was supposed to reopen and. And uh, it didn't. The world is going to have to wait a little bit longer for uh, Gage and Tolner to return. It was March 14th, I remember vividly, because that was our final day of uh, friends and family. And, uh, and people at that point, you know, friends and family and other, you know, people who had reservations on that Saturday, the 14th, they called and said, hey, are you guys still doing this? Because if you are, then we're still, we're, we're still going to come. But, you know, the, the management and all of us got together and made the painful decision of closing. Um, so I will never forget March 14th. Never mind March 15th. Um, <laughs> all of us sort of running around in our respective other businesses that we own and, and just telling our staff, you know, the news of, of for everybody's safety that we took this, you know, painful, painful, um, came to this painful realization that we just needed to shut it all down. 
Um, so that, that was a really tough day. <laughs> that week was really crazy because, yeah. you know, it's hard to put yourself back in that week. But if you, if you remember kind of every day, the fear of this uh, coronavirus was, was getting more and more intense. And I remember there was one time I, I, during that week, I noticed that there was no hand soap at the bar sink. And I ran across the street to the CVS to get some hand soap. And I got the last two bottles of hand soap in CVS. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is, this is getting serious. People are really taking this really serious. Right. And then, uh, you know, and the rest is history as they say. But I, I am glad that we took that, you know, moment um, before the actual opening date. I think it was really sort of a, you know, sort of a moment of reckoning. Like we have spent so much time and energy onto this project and March 15th was so anticipated. But the reality of COVID-19 was just so real right outside of our restaurant. And I have to say, honestly, people gave up such good faces, you know, all the all the employees and, and so many hardworking people at Gage and Tolner, the entire team. Um, but yeah, like the hand soap is a good example. It just, it just became too much and it, and it became so much more than Gage and Tolner at that moment. Um, so in hindsight, it was a tremendously difficult day and a decision, um, but I'm glad that we made it. And I think that was maybe three, four days before the city actually shut it down. Um, but it was tough. Yeah, we we uh, canceled uh, twenty thousand reservations. Twenty thousand in the first Whole month. In the first month, yeah. yeah. Wow, I have these that. Well, congratulations, first of all. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, but like, holy shit, coming out of the gate strong. I mean, y'all, that's like unreal. So, like, that's an accomplishment in of itself. But yes, tell us the logistics on canceling. Um, I think as Alex was just about to get into. Right. Um, I mean, you know, we have such a fabulous team and we just went into um, absolute sort of, you know, um, control mode of, of how do we do this properly. Um, but I have to say the, the, the mood, you know, I remember saying goodbye to the entire team at Gage uh, the night of the 14th, that Saturday, and just sort of sharing, a, you know, our last sort of family meal of pasta together and, and, and sort of talking about what the strategy should be. And I think n- nobody in this world knew how long it was going to take and what this, you know, what this virus is really about. So honestly, I think a lot of us had this idea, okay, we shut it down in a couple of months, maybe a month too. I don't know. We come back. Um, and we were very energized by such positive responses, you know, to the, to the week prior of our having, you know, friends and family and these opening parties, and not to mention the tremendous press that we got and all the anticipation of the entire entire city. Um, so, so we really thought that it was just going to be a very temporary situation. <laughs> Everybody did. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that's got to give you, uh, I mean, a lot of confidence in um, staying the course and weathering the storm and same sure. thing this thing out oh, yeah. that you had 20,000 people on the books without ever serving a single meal so yeah, you know, yeah. i think yeah. You're, i mean you're one of the few that can you know feel good about when you are able to reopen that you'll you know you'll sort of be able to put butts in seats you know yeah i mean you know jumping right into looking at the future um you know gajian tolner is kind of uniquely uh, able to accommodate people in this, you know, in whatever the post COVID world looks like, it's a pretty big restaurant and, um, there's a second floor. Our floor plan didn't have 
a lot of people sitting right next to each other anyway. And then, uh, so I think we'll be able to space the tables pretty well without it, you know, looking too weird or taking away from the character of the dining room. And then we have a second floor that we can also activate for just regular uh, dining as well. So, you know, so, so, you know, Gage is, is, um, is going to be ready when it, when we're allowed to, to uh, reopen. Do you have scenarios in place of like, you know, reopening at 50% capacity or whatever the sort of projections are from the local government? Um, yeah, we've, we've, um, we've, you know, made some, you know, seating plans and stuff and, and really it kind of, you know, if we, if we activate the second floor as well, then our, the total capacity for the dining room, you know, only drops by about 25%. We still lose some seating. And of course there's the logistic issues of having to serve people on the second floor. But again, I think that, um, I think that, you know, this restaurant will, will you know, has a fighting chance in the post-COVID uh, world. Whereas, right. you know, a lot of places um, are in more uh, difficult situations. Totally. And, and I think that one of the things that, you know, three of us partners really focused on was that, you know, we the, the need to shut it all down before we actually opened um, was critical because then we still are, you know, at a point where we haven't yet officially opened the restaurants, right? Um, so, so, so we, we want to hold on to the romance, um, the reasons why we all got involved in this project and really sort of show the world, show Brooklyn, show New York, um, the magic of Gage and Tolner and the reasons why so many people remember it and the reason why it's, it's lasted, you know, for as long as it did before it actually shuttered, um, in 2004. So, so we have this, this magical moment to look forward to, which is the official opening date. Um, and in doing that, you know, under, under COVID-19 and its rules and regulations and all the question marks and, and whatnot, um, we want to preserve our right to present it to the world in the way that we see it fit. Um, and that definitely ruled out, you know, doing any sort of outdoor dining when the city started letting restaurants do that, um, or even do takeaway. Um, so I, I think that if I think it would be different if we had open and it had been a couple of months, you know, we're in operation and then and then COVID hit. But the fact that we never actually got the chance to to have this grand opening, um, I think that we have to be more patient than some of the other restaurants and sort of and sort of really deeply believe in the fact that, yes, Gage and Tolmer will definitely make it through this uh, tough period um, and uh, and have that really grand celebratory grand opening that I feel that Gage and Tolmer really deserves. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's interesting because I, I did want to ask. I was curious, you know, what your philosophy is because the city does let people do outside dining. Um, but I, it, it makes sense just given how, just having been in that space and given how beautiful it is and how, like, that is definitely part of the experience and, you know, just the thought that you wouldn't put into the menu and having that menu in that experience, it, it does make sense that you would hold off. So yeah. that's the plan is you guys won't actually have your grand opening until it is safe to serve guests within, right. within the restaurant. That's right. But then, but then, you know, this notion of, uh, obviously when we were, um, when the whole city was pretty much shut down and in quarantine, um, and then we saw so many other people sort of, you know, suffering and, and the need, I think, as a team um, to do something, to contribute, 
um, to, to be active um, in helping uh, someone else, you know, it kicked in very, very strongly. And so, you know, out of the space, yes, we're not doing takeout or, you know, outdoor seating or anything like that, that some of the other restaurants are pivoting to, but we have focused um, very strongly on this idea that Gage and Tolmer has given back, you know, to community for so long. And even before we quote unquote, officially reopened open, that we could um, be a part uh, of, of, of this notion of giving and helping out. And so we've activated the kitchen. <laughs> now you know that we, we fully stocked and we had full inventory going in. Um, so we did. We started doing a lot of donation meals out of the Gage and Tolma kitchen. And, and just so, so incredibly proud of our team that has um, spearheaded um, and really taken uh, you know, control over over this this you know this partnership with various wonderful organizations local organizations to do donation meals um and i could certainly go into that a little bit but really kudos to chef you know adam shepherd um he's our cdc as um as you mentioned earlier caroline schiff our pastry sh- uh, chef um and you would go vasquez our kitchen manager christina jackson our executive sous chef like you know just solid team of people who are um, who are just so dedicated, so profoundly proud of what Gage and Tolner has been able to do um, since COVID. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's amazing, and um, yeah, we we saw we actually sent some masks over to Caroline to distribute with some of the meals um, hey, to the community. Right. Yeah, that you guys are supporting because we did. I mean, it's amazing. So I because that was another question I was curious. Like you just stocked your entire restaurant with yeah. ingredients to cook for twenty thousand people. So is that what so so essentially that's what happened with the ingredients and everything well yeah so when you have a fully stocked a kitchen that's ready to open and serve so so many meals um it is devastating um to to look at just financially what that kind of loss is uh we went into sort of um um uh control mode, especially uh, our other partner, Ben Schneider. And we turned um, one of the big walk-in uh, refrigerator, walk-in cooler into a freezer and we froze what we could and we picked, started pickling <laughs> everything that was fresh. Um, and a lot of the stuff we utilized through the donation meals, um, as well as, uh, now don't forget Sinjin and Ben and I, we have you know three other restaurants um, sort of separately out there. And Sinjin has Fort Defiance, which I'm sure he'll talk about in terms of what he had to do over there to pivot. Um, but we were able to move a lot of the pickle sort of items and turn it into donation meals, not just at Gage and Tolner, but at uh, Insa as well as uh, the Good Fork. Um, but but it was an incredible loss, as anybody who knows anything about um, you know accounting and and, and food costs, <laughs> it, it was it was a huge loss. But we did what we could. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I can I can go into the 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 financial uh, uh, you know fallout here too, which is uh, <laughs> my mind got to go in there and just like shut up, don't go. <laughs> no, I mean, but these are really real things that I think is actually you know if you do want to talk about it, we're here. I'm like if yeah, it's no, part it therapy, is. part uh, no, like, part it reality. Is. It is. It is. It was seventy five thousand dollars in sort of uh, just food inventory that was that was mostly lost um and you could pickle all you want but that's definitely food that you're not really serving um and 
so so yeah that was that was a big loss um but uh, but a lot of it did go to good use which is which is great um but it's just it's just bad luck you just have to chalk it up as bad luck and just sort of move on from there but Sinjin can go into you know greater detail of some of the numbers that you know yeah. Well, just, you know, because we only had a few days of sales and that was, you know, friends and family stuff, um, we didn't really qualify for any of the government assistance. Uh, the, we didn't uh, qualify for the PPP at all. And the, the EIDL loan that we got was $2,600. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a $6,000 grant, I should say. So, but that wasn't enough. Luckily for us, two things. One is we had already been working on a, um, a loan, a small business loan through uh, Pursuit, formerly known as the NYBBC. Uh, it's a loan that's underwritten by the SBA. And that finally got funded in June after months of uh, back and forth. Um, so that is helpful and stabilizes uh, the business so that we're able to kind of maintain this kind of deep freeze that we're in right now. The other Where does that, uh, good news does that go is, like entirely to to rent or what, what are your expenses to, while you're on freeze? It, it went it went largely to cover to cover opening costs that we thought would be uh, covered by revenue. So that means right. um, most mostly inventory, um, and uh, and then um, the other thing is that the other uh, good news for us is that the landlords have been. Great. I um, mm-hmm. I have to say I'm probably the first uh, guest on your show to say this, but they've <laughs> been like remarkably understanding and sensible and generous with this whole thing. You know, without getting too far into the details of it, I have to say that that you know we've been extremely fortunate with our landlords who are also investors in the business. I mean, that's really nice to hear, especially after like I don't know if you guys saw yesterday, like Uncle Boone's you know, basically Michelin star Thai place and Alita is closing permanently because they couldn't negotiate with their landlord, um, for their business to succeed. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, yeah, which is like heartbreaking. So I think like for our listeners and just to hear from you guys, that's really encouraging that your landlord, you know, was willing to work with you during this crazy time. So that's amazing to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really. It, I, I we realize that we're sort of exception to the rule. Uh, you you find you read all the statistics of how many restaurants are going under right now and how many are receiving assistance, um, and uh, how many landlords are being completely irrational and you know they're just not being at all uh, helpful. Um, and it's just ultimately sad in the grand scheme of things what the restaurant landscape is going to look like specifically in New York City. Um, yeah, it's going to change. I, it's going to change a, a it's lot. Change, I don't know if sure. You guys know that. Yeah. What um, there w- there will be changes in the way that we eat, the way that we want to sit next to one another, with the way that people want to wait at the bar. What kind of do you guys foresee those changes, and, and does that change the way that you approach you know the re reopening of Gage and Tolner, and whenever that might be. Well, I, I mean, um, uh, you know, the one thing that I know is pro- is not going to work at the outset is, you know, we have this super cozy um, cocktail bar on the second floor that is 
you know, it's meant to kind of juxtapose against the, the, you know, the grandeur of the downstairs room. It was this kind of tucked away, tiny, cozy bar that would only seat about 30 people. And that's the Is room. The that I'm like, space oh. or the uh, different yeah, space? Yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, that, the Sunken uh, Harbor gorgeous and yeah. Yeah, and I really wonder. I mean, I don't think that place is going to is going to be the way that we imagined it for you know at least a year, maybe two years. I mean, you know, who knows? But you know, like I said, I mean, you guys saw the dining room at Gage and Toner when you were there. It kind of lends itself to space. It offers you know New York diners this this rare experience of having tables that are separated from one another, and, <laughs> right. uh, you know, where you're not like right on top of each other. So I think that. You know, really, the idea is for the the changes in the main dining room to be minimal, and I think we can get away with that. Yeah. It, what about it, the menu not... and the way that people eat? Sorry to... Oh, yeah, yeah no, what, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I... Um... Well, firstly, you know, uh, I think Sinjin alluded to this earlier. We, you know, Ben especially has been in there sort of surveying and, and still working on the second floor um, because we most likely will need um, to supplement. But if you, you know, our dining room is so big that I think um, 50, even 50% capacity, it is doable. Um, and, uh, you know, we took all the tables and, and uh, spaced it out six feet and really trying to stay away from some of the other ways that uh, restaurants are trying to do this safely. Um, a lot of restaurants are opting to put fiberglass or plexiglass in, in between um, tables. Uh, and I just feel like, first of all, I don't know if the landmarks will allow us to do that. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it's just, you know, it just would take away from the absolute grandeur of the experience of eating at Gage and Tolner. So it's, I think it all, it, it all has to be about spacing, um, comfortable spacing, uh, 50% capacity, um, and having, you know, taken a look at our ventilation system and, uh, and putting in the right filters and, and just making sure that we have all the PPEs for our employees and, and following protocol, um, to, to have a safe sort of dining environment. Um, but it just seems to, to us right now, having the New York City outdoor dining extended to October 31st, I, you know, that sort of is a clue to us and sort of signaling that I, I don't know that di- outdoor indoor dining at any sort of capacity is, is going to be possible anytime soon. So I think that we're looking at this, um, the long game, right? All of us, uh, the entire restaurant industry, basically in New York city. Um, but yeah, we have some ideas, but again, it's, 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 how do you, how do you deal with COVID-19 and the restrictions and social responsibilities and trying to keep our diners and our employees safe while at the same time offering this, this, you know, this ideal version, you know, this dream of, of hosting guests, you know, in the historic Asian Tolner. So every day we think about it for sure. Um, and insofar as the menu is concerned, you know, I think that the logistics of reopening is going to take so much out of us in terms of the actual uh, space and, and how do we implement um, protocols and, and um, a, basically a new way of operating front of the house and back of the house that I think that menu um, will, will sort of come last, right? And because that also depends on um, exactly when we're allowed to do this. So I think that, you know, Adam and I and the rest of the team will, will tackle 
um, what it is that we showcase. Is it the same exact, um, is it the exact menu that we were so proud and ready to unveil in March? Um, do we open in November, December, January? It all depends. And we do still want to work with the, the great vendors that we lined up for ourselves. And by the way, going back to the whole lost inventory, some of our vendors have been so understanding and so amazing, just like our landlord. Um, and uh, with the big meat aging program that we had with our one vendor, they were very understanding and, and uh, they were able to sell off our stock that we sort of had promised them. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of give and take and understanding, I think, within the industry and people trying to help one another out. Um, so so in terms of menu, yeah, I think that uh, it depends on exactly when we pinpoint the day of our opening is going to be in that yeah, way what think. we do. Yeah. What we'll do, so what we will seasonality, do. Seasonality, you've got you know the obvious concern of you know, will people indulge you know, even more so? Will they be less indulgent? Can you, right. I mean, sure. You know, how I mean, do you I, predict I, against you know getting stuck with you know, twenty? I forget what number. Of no, you're right. You said an inventory with absolutely you know, sort of absolutely. an uncertainty moving forward. Yeah, exactly. I think that. that reason. I think predicting human behavior is going to be sort of the, the craziest unknown part of this all. Like, you know, whatever, there might be a vaccine, there might be a cure, you know, um, obviously not anytime soon concretely. Uh, but if the news are correct and, and there is this absolute race and science has shown that, you know, they can sort of speed things up. Are people going to take the vaccine and, and, and are they going to go out to, to dine indoors? Um, and feel comfortable with that. How much are they going to spend? You know, the economy is not doing well, unemployment skyrocketing. Um, what, I mean, you know, who who's gonna dine out the way that we dined out, you know, pre-COVID? Um, so all these are absolute big, big question marks that, you know, obviously nobody has a crystal ball, but I am trusting the fact that people are missing um, community and closeness and, um, and good food not made by them you know i i am tired of cooking and I, i'm a chef and i cook I every day and i love it <laughs> but oh my gosh would i love to go to a restaurant and and just have you know a really relaxing time you know being just you know just being in and just being treated so well in a restaurant so i am keeping faith and hope that people are um waiting for the right time to do that um so, I mean, that is the hope, but who knows how it's, how it's going to shake out, you know, in reality. I love that hopeful message. And I'm with you. I'm praying for that roaring 20s scenario where we all come back and it's yeah. just like, let's get out there and, and, you know, have some enjoyment again, be taken care of and take care of those guests. Yeah. Um, on that note, um, we're just start, we're starting to run short on time, even though this is like such a great, important conversation. Um, so we'd love to just shout out any any opening soon announcements. So obviously you guys don't have a date yet, but have you seen any other friends reopen or open? Anybody you want to shout out? Uh, yes, I want to shout out our one of our own, Caroline Schiff, the pastry chef. She's doing a pop-up um, at, um, at Edith's. Um, and I think that's a part of the poly G space and she's going to be doing traditional, um, Jewish foods and she's, she's just so excited to, I think it's launched, um, this coming week. Um, so that's something that people should be looking out for. Um, 
uh, Adam and Gage and Tolner, we are going to be a part of the NYCHA, the meal donation program that we have been doing and, and working on with Krista Lynch of, um, oh, geez, Brooklyn Braised. Um, and we partnered up with them uh, uh, for eight weeks doing meals, um, meals on us. Uh, that is coming to a close. But I think um, for me, I, I don't know what Sinjin has, but for me, it's really this, this notion of, um, you know, people helping people um, and, uh, and really dealing with sort of the meal, the food insecurity issue of our neighbors in New York City. So, so there's just a lot of community work to be done. Um, we've partnered up with Stronger Together, uh, downtown Brooklyn partnership, um, at uh, Brooklyn Hospital Center. So I know so many people need help and I think that donations are sort of drying up all over the place, but I think that it's a really, really important message, especially as, you know, industry people whose main job is to feed people. I think that we still have so much work to do. Um, in terms of people opening up. Well, INSA, has, INSA is up and running in terms of the outdoor dining. Uh, ben Schneider has been working very hard to make the outdoor very, very pleasant looking and, and, uh, and everything six feet apart. And our main team at INSA is working very hard. Um, the Good Fork, I did close, uh, Ben and I closed the doors to the Good Fork sort of temporarily about five weeks ago. Um, you know, telling the world that we might or might not come back. Um, uh, and that's sort of still an open-ended question. Um, but I'm thinking about maybe partnering up with a lot of my cooks and chef fellow friends out there who, you know, need to work. So uh, this idea of pop-up restaurants, I think it's really fun. Um, and so, so that's what's, you know, that's what's on the front burner in my brain about, um, to get some, some things going with, uh, so if you have a pop-up idea, call Sohi, DM her, tell yeah, her, totally. tell her she's ready I have, for you. That's a good totally. Point. And I have the space, you know, the good fork and Sinjin has an exciting announcement about Fort Defiance. If you haven't heard about it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I just, just wanted to say about the meals on us thing. We, we did an eight week, uh, partnership with, um, uh, Brooklyn Braised uh, to bring meals to the uh, Kensington uh, Family Shelter. Um, the good work that uh, Krista Lynch uh, began is still going on, and you can um, visit her uh, campaign at I Fund Women and uh, still support her efforts, which are uh, very good. Um, so uh, Fort Defiance, uh, my place that opened in uh, 2009 in Red Hook, is closed as a restaurant and is open as a general store. Um, and we will be able to welcome you into that space uh, before Labor Day. We're working hard on it now. Right now, we're taking orders online on the Fort Defiance website and in person through our uh, takeout window. I also want to give a shout out to some friends in Seattle, my friends uh, Zach Overman and Jonathan oh, yes. uh, Proville, both um, both uh, former uh, Fort Defiance employees, opened a beautiful place in Seattle called Lorsan, which uh, is still is still in operation, but they're doing this southern pop-up out of it called Old Scratch. And so if you live in Seattle, go check out Old Scratch at Lorsan. Cool. Thanks for those awesome tips and congratulations on, you know, all your hard work feeding the community. It is so important right now for helping people with food insecurity. So thank you guys for that. And we can't wait to come into Gage and Tolner when it's <laughs> and see it in its real glory that it's meant to. Mm. Um, Al, you want to take it from here? Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, guys, for sharing with us. We really appreciate the um, 
the tough but honest and yet optimistic uh, feedback and outlook. Uh, you can find our podcast on Heritage Radio Network, uh, your favorite podcast apps. You can also follow us on Instagram at We Are Opening Soon and at TillotNYC. This is our last episode of the fourth season. Yay. Yay. Uh, we'll be taking a brief. <laughs> Thank you so much for having hiatus. us. Thanks for being here. We're going to take a little break and uh, we'll be back in um, a few weeks with our next season. Thanks, guys. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.